Welcome to Chit Chat Money. Today is Tuesday, March 9th, uh, and today we have a discussion with Francisco and Alex, otherwise known as the Science of Hitting, um, and we are just talking Spotify, basically kind of trying to break down the entire thesis, break down the business. Uh, we bull haven't case, recorded it yet. Right. Yeah, so both bull and bear case, but we're going. We're recording this right now before the uh, discussion. So It could go poorly, but I'm assuming it went really well. Yeah, well, yeah, we hope so. Uh, but before we get to the discussion, what's your story for the week? Mine is going to be Square buying Tidal. Uh, a lot of hullabaloo on Twitter of this. People making fun of them for acquiring a music streamer. They don't know how it works in a financial services company. But uh, Dorsey was doing some tweets, and it makes a little bit of sense. And we can kind of go over how this could either work out for Square or how it could be a total write-off. Okay, and I actually have a pretty long story today. It's what happened to Wirecard. One of the most interesting stories I've come across in a long time. I know people have heard about the fraud, but they don't exactly know what happened. So, uh, I just and see, it's, uh, it's I, juicy. I just see all the bears on Twitter tweet it, and then there's like court documents, and I'm like, guys, you know I'm not reading this 20-page document. Uh, yes. Just give, me a, just give me a headline to read. Uh, but then we have our current state of Fintwit, hot water, buy, sell, hold, anecdotal evidence. But before we move on, we got our sales pitch. So seven investing, use code CCM. You want to maybe get yeah, a little pitch sales it. pitch well, if you want, if you want market beating returns and seven picks each month, I mean, it's the place to go. I was looking at their March and February recommendations, and I've already been doing a deeper dive into one of their recommendations. Really liked it a lot. Is um, it Matt's? I... I will not spill the beans. It is Matt's. I can <laughs> it tell. Could be the, uh, yeah, I know you I like that one. Yeah. Yeah. The that yeah. That, I've been doing some research on them. So if you want, you know, seven new stock picks each month with a long term time horizon and at a very reasonable cost, ten dollars off with our code CCM. Uh, there's nothing else to say. Okay. Here you go. Welcome to Chit Chat Money. On this show, hosts Ryan Henderson and Brett Schaefer interview industry experts and riff on the world of investing. As a quick reminder, Chit Chat Money is a CCM Media Group podcast. Ryan and Brett are also general partners at Arch Capital, and Arch Capital may have positions in the securities discussed in this podcast. Anything discussed on Chit Chat Money by Ryan or Brett or any other podcast guests is not formal advice or recommendation. Now, please enjoy this episode. All right, welcome in. I'm going to kick things off. My story, the title of my story this week is What Really Happened to Wirecard? So uh, it's less discussion and more me sort of just detailing the story, but bear with me because it's pretty interesting. Um, So I think everyone's heard a little bit about the Wirecard fraud, uh, but if you don't know, Wirecard was a fintech company based in Germany, and so they were a payments processor at one point, they were valued at like $26 billion. They were sort of, I mean, the German economy is really, uh, it's built on sort of the auto business. Um, and so that's kind of what they've been known for. And so this was sort of their path into the technology uh, that like the Western world was kind of thriving on. Okay. Um, and they actually got admitted to the DAX, which is the index for the 30 largest German companies. So it's similar to the Dow. So this company was huge. Like it was... Uh, a pretty big deal. It was kind of a darling. Like the Germans wanted to back it. Like they wanted it to be sort of that big tech company that they could have. 
anyway, uh, so they were started around 2000, and it started out as a payments for the adult film industry and gambling industries, which is kind of, I mean, that's maybe a red flag to begin with, but over time it evolved away from that. No, it's good culture. <laughs> the, good, good corporate culture. Uh, and the founder was the same, so there was no ch- change there. The, the CEO and the founder was an Austrian by the name of Marcus Braun. But the CEO was someone named Jan Marsalek, and Marsalek was sort of an IT nerd growing up, apparently, uh, but he worked his way up the ranks in the Wirecard company. And so uh, apparently around 2010, Wirecard started showing basically absurd profit growth. Um, and a lot of this came from what they called their third-party provider business. And so they had partners in the Philippines, Dubai, Singapore, and some other places where they never actually had any operations. But these businesses or their, these partners would print these fake profit and revenue statements and just send them over. And it was literally – I mean it was just fake money, totally fake. Uh, Ernst & Young was the auditor and they began to cite a few concerns. And so by this time – it was, I think it was around like, maybe I'm getting the time frame wrong. I think it was like. So the auditor is actually kind of raising some questions, well, right? But they're not totally. It wasn't, they were signing off on it. Okay. So they were they're fine with it. Yeah. Uh, and I mean, that's kind of a blemish on their uh, report card, if you will, uh, over time or the yes. resume. Yeah. And Chanos was against it. I think Chanos was outspoken. Uh, but they started to say there are some weird accounting anomalies going on with their Asian operations because they didn't have operations in Asia or they didn't operate there. Anyway, um, finally, they uh, they had, well, there would always be these concerns. So Financial Times had a write-up about it, kind of citing the concerns, and then the CEO would come out or management would come out and deny it. And they do an interview on CNBC or something like that. There was one with mm-hmm. Andrew Ross Sorkin and Marcus Braun. And yeah, he's no, like, I don't pay attention to that stuff. Um, and then the, he'd always, they'd always up their forecasts yeah, as soon as that happened. Oh, yeah. That reminds me of so many other companies. Uh, don't listen to the what? What do they always say? Don't listen to the, the FUD, the fear, insecurity, and doubt. Uh, right. When someone says that, anyone, it totally throws up my you know antenna of like, all right, this is a giant red flag. Yeah. Stay away. And anyway, so you should, so remember, Marcus Braun is the CEO. Jan Marsalek is the COO, and he's kind okay. of worked his way up the ranks in the company. And I recommend everyone go look up Jan Marsalek pictures. At one point, he had like this beard and kind of long, shaggy hair. And then out of nowhere, he cleaned up, wore a suit, like extravagant tastes and he was the COO out like out of nowhere and it kind of now it makes sense but uh, I'll keep going so they had supposed banks in the Philippines that would print fake balance sheet confirmations claiming they had two billion dollars in cash there Uh, and Marcellic was sort of in charge of those banks he's the one that kind of printed those fake balance sheet statements and then finally around 2019 to 2020 KPMG who's another auditor was called in to do a special audit on these banks. And it wasn't necessarily like, okay, this is fraudulent. We got to check it out. It was, do they have access? Can they access this liquidity if they needed to? Right. Which obviously with it not being there, it didn't exist. So no, they could not access it. Um, but on June 18th, this is when it was sort of figured out. This 2020. Yeah. Uh, the oh. stock dropped. Yeah. So whatever. Uh, nine months ago, I guess. Yeah. Um, the stock dropped from about one hundred four dollars to twenty nine dollars in a day. So, uh, yes, tough. if you owned it, which uh, I think the, one of the Ark ETFs owned it, yeah. which is unfortunate. They a lot wouldn't, of they wouldn't it. own anything that's 
<laughs> but anyway, um, Marcellic, he, you know, he's kind of scrambling at this point. He's worried. Uh, but he was suspended from the company. And an employee at the company said he had one last meeting with Marcus Braun. And they were, like, yelling at each other. Um, and nice. then he left. And they ra- so the police, the authorities raided his house, found a dresser full of, like, uppers, downers, drugs. And they kept looking for him. They couldn't find him. Marcus Braun was arrested, uh, and he's in jail now. He, is, he was the CEO. Um, and it's reported that Jan Marcellic funneled out $1.5 billion of the company. So he, he was able to funnel $1.5 billion out by using company money to lend to these mysterious businesses that he had abroad. He owned the businesses abroad, and he'd lend them money, and so he just took it. Um, Anyway, so they owed lenders and creditors $12 billion. Braun, the CEO, was the largest shareholder. So while he is in jail, he was also the one that was gypped by Marcellic the most. Right. And they can't find Marcellic. So apparently he took a private plane from Austria to Belarus as soon as they started cracking down on this. Um, It is alleged that he was helped by an Austrian Secret Service member and far-right politician. Apparently... uh, like this guy was connected with the Secret Service when he entered Wirecard, and then he started to work his way up the ranks, which is so. It sounds like a some like, movie, like an action movie. Yeah, yeah the uh, someone needs to definitely write a book on this. I bet someone is. Um, it reminds me of the billion dollar whale guy. The was it Malaysia, the Malaysian one MDB thing that Goldman mm. Sachs was tied into, and now that guy's hiding out in China. Uh, reminds me exactly of that guy. Um, yeah, they they have no idea where he is. There's like, if you there's like wanted signs all over Germany with geez. his face plastered on it, um, or at least that's what this video made it look like. It, what are the big lessons for you in this? First of all, my big one is all management make sure that they have a significant stake in the business. Mm, yeah, yeah, yeah. True. That's a that's all. That's a good thing to check on always. Um, validating customers, asking if someone's putting up numbers. Does it like you have to kind of just put the? It's similar to like Luck and Coffee, where you just go, all right, do these numbers just make logical sense right. in this? economic environment with these operating margins with whatever they're saying like does this business model like gut check does it does it make sense to you and investigating customers like all right if you look at another payments processor in europe uh adyen who's kind of like a stripe competitor but they got a bunch of business with you know like spotify legit companies right uh and you can be like all right well yeah they're probably legit maybe they're you know every company you could assume there could be some fu- number fudging, but yeah, I think that's kind of the biggest takeaway. You got to know who their customers are. Does the, the business model make sense? And then right. management too, like you were saying. Yeah, and the so remember this Marcellic guy is like a fugitive. So go look up a picture of Marcellic, yeah, uh, it's and bad. it's hilarious. It's uh, he's looking rough. He looks like he was made in a Fast and Furious movie, but uh, it's I don't think. The story might not be dead over. Seems like there's these connections that might turn into a whole geopolitical thing. Yeah. But the other thing I would say for like sort of vetting to make sure you don't invest in a business like this is if things look too good. Mm-hmm. So if profits are, I mean, we saw this with like the Under Armour stuff, how they would, it would, 
sales would tick up like 20% exactly every year yep. or uh, right around there. Uh, I made just, a, it, just beating earnings. Like right. if someone's beating earnings by a penny each quarter, that's a giant red flag. Yeah. And then how do like the, if something comes out about the company and the management instantly goes and does public relations crap, that's mm-hmm. also a red flag for me. Uh-huh. Because yeah. you look at like Reed Hastings or you look at Bezos, like those companies were sold short and they never, they don't acknowledge it. Like no, well, they acknowledge Reed, it, yeah. but they don't, they don't spend too much time on it. The right. only reason yeah. Reed Hastings did was because that guy that sold short was like a donor to one of his like uh, charity projects and he yeah. didn't want him to lose money. And he didn't like target him. He mentioned who it was, but he basically said, look, I understand the concerns with our business. Here's the bull case. Here's what we're doing. It's working. And like he just made it public. He didn't want to target the short sellers. He didn't call them evil. I mean, if someone's targeting short sellers and focusing all their time on it, again, it's you can flag. think of the, you can think of the companies uh, that we like to not like on the show. Right. Uh, that this is just a giant red flag. Why why invest in it? Just stay away. Like there's plenty of other mm-hmm. companies out there. And the other thing is, you know, I'd watch some of the interviews with. Uh, the Wirecard CEO and be wary I know people say this all the time of people that say a lot of words but mean nothing yes the because words. He, he well he would just like he'd go on and on but there was nothing really material that you could take away it's like the same thing with Elizabeth Holmes oh yeah when you watch those interviews she would go on for like 10 minutes and not say anything mm-hmm. it was marvelous but uh, I mean it was kind of impressive that the- you go round and round and not actually get to the point. But uh, well, anyway. I, I think that is a good point of um, even someone, okay, even if you have the ability to have access to a management team, honestly, I, I do not like listening to like CEO videos unless they're someone, I, I do like listening to like uh, or watching like videos of maybe, you know, tutorials of how a business works if it's a little complicated. Yeah. But I do not like watching CEOs basically pitch their companies I hate listening to the conference calls where the CEOs are trying to basically like say how good they did. I just kind of, I, I like to read the transcript with that. And I don't even, I don't like watching if a CEO goes on like CNBC or something. It's not like, I don't know, what's that going to help? You're just getting, you're just kind of uh, inviting like bias into your thing. You're inviting, you know, if it's like they've shown in, uh, I guess, there's been studies, so it's not like confirmed or anything, but that if like a CEO is really good looking, guy or girl, even if you're like attracted to that sex, then you're going to have a bias towards them. Hmm. And I, I don't want that at all. I mean, if you look at like even Warren Buffett with Apple, he's not calling up Tim Cook every day and he's not telling them how to run the business. He's not like, all right, convince me to own Apple. He just let them do their thing and uh, he'll deal with it, you know. No, another himself. interesting note at the end, they were asked, uh, they asked Ernst and Young for comment. On like the story, and Ernst and Young was like, "We were deceived that mm-hmm. by this criminal network. It was so intricate." I'm like, "This is why you're hired is to figure it out. Like, it you was don't the point, don't then. play victim here. Like, it's your job." Yeah, whatever. All right, what's your story? Okay, this will be short. It's a simpler story, not as complex. But Square is acquiring. Uh, well, I said Jay Z and title because it seems like they're acquiring title, but everyone's just focusing on Jay Z joining the company. He's an expert in fintech, as we know, but. 
No, sorry. He's a great he's a great businessman. I don't want to poke fun at that. But yeah, they announced they're intending to buy a majority stake in title for $297 million with a mix of cash and stock. Details are not finalized. Uh, the only reason they're not acquiring or acquiring the whole thing is because some of the artists that own title are going to keep their stake, which is probably good. Uh, Jay-Z will also be joining Square's board of directors. If you're wondering what title is, it's a music streaming service that focused on high quality. Uh, They had some exclusive stuff, music videos, like they would do things where it's released on this one first. So you have like a month of it's only on title, say like a new album or something. And then it goes to Spotify, Apple, Google, Amazon. Uh, And it was owned by Jay-Z and other artists, but he kind of was the... Him and I, I think there was a few other people, they kind of, they started it. Like they were, he was yeah. kind of, he wasn't the CEO necessarily, but he was, he had the inspiration to start Initially, it. well, it helps to have his face plastered to the, the company, video. but yeah. uh, initially it was supposed to be like a big Spotify competitor. Like, mm-hmm. And maybe it, it, maybe you could consider that, consider it that now, but like Spotify, when they're getting all the scrutiny for not being artist friendly or whatever right. this they were really leaning into that like well we'll be artist friendly because we're made by artists they were trying to introduce ownership into music streaming um the business did a promise a few years ago but it is reportedly losing around 50 million dollars a year with stalled growth so there's no reason to think that that will turn around unless square can really change things up um the reasoning for the acquisition so Dorsey, CEO of Square and Twitter, uh, in his own way, he always tweets about stuff, you know, talking his book, but he had a thread outlining what their plans were with Tidal. A few things were, one, just mainly trying to find new ways for artists to support their work. Think of it like, you know, they have like Square for restaurants, but now they're going to have a Square for artists. Um, They mentioned merch sales, complimentary revenue streams. Now, those ideas sound good, but what... Maybe we'll do this first. What's the bear case here? And then we'll go, what's the bull case? How could it work? Well, first of all, it feels like he's pretending the labels don't exist. Like he's not going to get pushed back there. Like True. It, building a uh, title for artists or a square, you know, like the square for restaurants, square for artists type thing, you're going to get pushed back from the labels immediately. Uh, yeah. I think Spotify's witnessed that. Remember when Spotify tried to do the Spotify for artists thing, direct upload, and it yeah. crashed within little, six months? I think it's a little different, though, because they might be wanting to just do it where it's easier for them to make money, but that could uh, it's still anything where the artists are making money. Um, Without the labels have, getting a chunk of it? While they're still under contract with the labels, that's dicey, and it always gets complicated. I, I mean, I, I like Dorsey. But this, I tend to like Dorsey, but this felt random, yeah. and it felt out of his circle of competence. We'll see. We'll see. Well, yeah. So the bear case, I think, for me, is that. Do you one, know a single title user? Oh no, I mean no, 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 no. I don't know a single one. Yeah. What? Yeah. I mean, it's obviously a bad business. They're going to be losing fifty million a year. That's just a hole in Square's pocket. Uh, they're acquiring it for about. It's less than one percent of Square's market cap. So even if it's a total write-off. It's not like it will kill the company, but that's not how you should think as a, as a business person or as an investor. <laughs> I don't understand why you need to acquire title to do this. One, you could offer Jay-Z a seat on the board and do a partnership either way. And you could just build what, you know, you could build Square for artists or whatever without acquiring title, I think. Yeah. Uh, but it feels like maybe, the only bull thesis is the whole like, you can 
people are talking about the cash app synergies between listeners and artists. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, because yeah, which cash app's big with uh, hip hop and rap, and maybe that just locks okay. them in with that, and the I think whole benefit pe- could be there. But I don't know. People are overestimating how many voluntary contributions they would get just yeah. because they have access to the artist through cash app, and they already do. They already have access That's, to the cash app. They did a partnership with Spotify this spring, and I, I believe both companies mentioned that it did really well. So, I don't know. Also, it felt like everyone at Square started bragging that they had like a meeting with Jay-Z, or yeah, they had a Zoom video with Jay-Z. That's usually a bad sign if you're doing it for like the face yes. of an acquisition. Like, and he has a great track record of business, you know, like uh, starting and whatever, uh, helping with businesses, but it feels a bit to me like uh, the executive producer role. You know what I mean? Where they're like, yeah. executive producer, blank, 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 executive producer, Barack Obama, and it's like, well, I yeah. I know that I don't need, and I'm not a Square shareholder anymore, and so maybe it's easier for me to give backlash to it. But even if I was, I I'm not happy about the acquisition. I don't no. think there's that. Everyone, there were a lot of people that were bullish about it, and it doesn't make any sense to me. No. I mean, they don't. Did they report a user number on title? I no. imagine they avoided doing that for a reason. Oh, yeah. Well, the, the highest estimates were that it's 5% of music streaming in the U.S., which is tiny. And I don't think it's nearly that high. Um, I mean, the, okay, I tweeted out something like, what's the bull case? I got a bunch of jokes. Uh, thank you, I think, Nick Seipel, Thunderdome Capital, for some great jokes there. But <laughs> the, there was some good points, like uh, some... I think Kermit Capital was giving me some good threads of what people were thinking. I, and that does that stuff makes sense. I just don't see why title is relevant again to building this stuff out. You could build it out, I think, without title. Yeah. Uh, but that? other people were talking about NFTs. Oh god. And that <laughs> I hope okay. Well, I guess that'll end the conversation. But yeah, th- like, didn't, uh, uh, <laughs> didn't Spotify used to partner i thought spotify and cash app were planning some kind of partnership no i I just mentioned that yeah so they did it this spring to help so basically you put it into your spotify page your cash app and then it can help you either have an artist donate to a cause or it's more of like it could be similar to a patreon a bit okay uh, where you could help support a smaller artist Uh, and they said it went well but they didn't give any real numbers so whenever a company gives you know, whenever a company says, well, progress went pretty well on that, but they never gave any hard numbers, uh, I usually just disregard it. Okay. Current state of FinTwit, uh, unless you got anything else on there. Nope. Okay. Mine, I didn't have much. Most of it just got dumped into hot water. So uh, we are looking at another down day uh, for a <laughs> lot of the big, growthier names. So is the de-arcaning happening uh, <laughs> that everyone has rumored or everyone's talked about. They, I mean, there's been a lot of articles about the liquidity problems. Raiders um, of the Lost Ark. Stay on <laughs> that from someone. But, uh, yeah, I don't know how ETFs work, so I'm not going to say what's going to happen. But as someone that's invested in long, we, we don't short. So it's not like we're trying to be predatory. But, again, I think I talked about it last week how there's no way long short funds aren't looking at this. Yeah. Um, I'm looking at it again. It's down 5% again today um still up 117 percent on the year so i mean you can't complain about the performance of the long term but i don't as some again or sorry bring it back to we only are long uh stocks so the only thing that i would look at is if they have any for selling and there's companies you like 
maybe there's going to be an opportunity to buy. Uh, mm-hmm. But a lot of the companies they own that we like, um, and I won't say any names, but you know, you can think of one we don't. Obviously, is Tesla. We bash on them every week, but uh, it's just they're all very, very. Uh, they're most of them are still even with this downtick. I mean, it would take what a longer, way long, bigger haircut for things to get interesting. I know everyone invests yeah. with different time horizons, and everyone's more comfortable with more of a premium valuation. But yeah, I mean, could be some. I don't know. If it's the, if, interesting. There are com- we bash on Arc sometimes, but uh, not. There yeah. are companies within that ETF that I own or would like to own at the right price. So uh, you know. Feasting on those carcasses would be. I, I would, guess. yeah. The companies are not carcasses. I don't even know what will happen. Maybe nothing will happen, but I would say just be prepared if it does. It could give me some opportunities. Who knows? We could be just talking out of our ass here. Yeah. All right. What do you have? Uh, okay. So our guy Chamath is ah, not. Gosh, doing you great. stole it. You stole it from me. Okay. Well, let's just talk about it now. Or may, well, let's just save it for the second half thing. Let's get to the discussion first. Okay. Yeah. Uh, okay, there was a tweet from the mysterious account called Quantian. Quantian, yes. <laughs> and he said, uh, what do you think about this? Not a, This isn't really a joke at all. He said, a family of four making the median income would receive roughly $12,000 in aid under the new plan or 20% of their income. The U.S. economy is going to look like the 50s very soon. This rules. Hope everyone's ready for 5% annual GDP growth for the rest of the Biden administration. Your thoughts on that? Stimulus? We're definitely uh, overheating the economy. It's going to be interesting to see what happens. Did you see Pomp's take on it? Uh, Mute mute him, dude. Mute him. Sorry. (laughs) That's what I do. People were like, yeah, you know, we're getting stimulus checks, but inflation it's actually worse for them mm-hmm. i was like what that doesn't well you so no zero dollars is better than yeah. 1400 nah he just ignore that the uh but it's kind of the opposite so you know how ever since like the 80s or late 70s 80s there's been the talk about you know trickle down economics or whatever mm-hmm. that was the theory and uh it worked for the overall economy it seems like i could be wrong if an economist is listening but it didn't really work for like the bottom 90% um, and growing their real, uh, what would it be called, income per capita or whatever, their, you know, their average income or median mm-hmm. income. But this seems to be the opposite. It's almost like trickle-up economics. And maybe the opposite will work. Pull little George Costanza, see if that works for the economy. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I'm sure. If the opposite is wrong, or sorry, if every thought you have is wrong, then the opposite must be correct. Give everyone a bunch of money. Okay. All right. So next we have our discussion with Alex and Francisco. Wait, I have a... Oh, you have another one? Sorry. Yeah. Do, uh, the Dorsey. Dorsey is selling his uh, first tweet as an NFT. You saw that? I don't is, even understand the NFTs. I get it. Whatever. It's a no, no, you moment don't get it. captured on the blockchain. I guess you know, I don't you don't, No, we don't get it. But what are your, what are your odds? What odds do you put of this going to end down in history when they write the books on this era? About the poster ch- NFTs being the poster child for the froth or the the mini bubble, I think it's oh, I, is, almost a lock. It's almost a lock. I mean, it feels like pure. I think I saw a tweet about this where it's like it feels like the purest form of speculation. And big, Bitcoin is though. I guess Bitcoin. It's is just better, like it. It just doesn't make any. I, I thought you got it. the copyrights. I, don't it. I thought you got the copyrights when you bought it. Yeah, which would make don't. sense to me, but you don't. 
And then uh, and no, uh, there was comments to it that were like, because, yeah, I saw that you don't get the copyrights to it. And then people are like, so what do you get? And then they're, they're like, well, beauty's in the eye of the beholder. It's like, that's okay. That's not, <laughs> I feel like that's a way of saying it's worth whatever you want it to be worth. Yeah, like, beauty's in, I mean, this reminds me of, uh, well, SPACs reminded me of the South Sea Bubble. Back in the 1700s, I was, you know, I was there. No, but uh, reading about the South Sea Bubble and stuff like that. Uh, it's a great endeavor for stuff that's going to be exciting. Ooh, this is new. Ooh, this is cool. You have ownership of this code or something. <laughs> you get Do, but the thing, he, uh, I don't know. All right, let's get to the Dorsey discussion. always plays into that stuff. But uh, what are you most looking forward to since we haven't talked since we haven't done the in- discussion yet? Okay, I am very mm, okay. I'm very bullish. On Spotify, if people know. Yeah. So, again, before we talk, this is not investment advice at this time. Clients in our uh, fund hold Spotify. But I'm interested to see the bear case. I know Alex has some good thoughts about the concerns about the business model. And I'm really interested to see what they think about the podcast opportunity. Yeah, I agree. Uh, because we kind of he has think, a podcast. Alex has one too, right? Yeah, they yeah, actually those two do some good discussions on Disney on there, which are really insightful. Um, yeah, like because uh, we always kind of think it's hard to quantify. We are like, well, the podcast opportunity is huge, and yeah. we think Spotify will capture the most of it. But it's hard to decide. All right, is it going to be a five billion dollar industry or is it going to be a twenty five billion dollar industry? Hard to tell. Yeah, agreed. Uh, I'd say the podcasting conversation is probably what I'm most looking forward to. But uh, without further ado, here you go. Cox Panoramic Wi-Fi includes advanced security to help protect all your connected devices. You'll get real-time alerts. Oh, like this one. So you don't have to worry about malware. Or when your kid downloads a song from a shady link. And now all your computer can play is... Red color, red color, where are you? All blocked, thanks to advanced security, included with Cox Panoramic Wi-Fi. Advanced security must be enabled in the Panoramic Wi-Fi app. Restrictions apply. Today, we are welcomed by Alex, uh, also known as the Science of Hitting on Twitter, uh, and Francisco Oliveira. I believe you've both been on the show once. Um, uh, Francisco was here for 25 Stocks at Christmas, so less of a typical format, but Today we're talking Spotify, just a full-blown deep dive on Spotify. We'll try to hit some of the bear points, some of the bull points. Um, before we get started, how are you guys? How's everything going? It's going well. Thanks for Good. having me. Okay. All right. Happy um, to be back. All right. Fantastic. <laughs> I'll kick the things off with the first question to Francisco. Uh, Alex, you can feel free to chime in as well. Uh, but first question is basically just pricing power. Francisco, do you think that uh, Spotify could raise prices? I know right now ARPU continues to decline as they enter new markets, but uh, do you think they have room to raise prices right now? I think ultimately they they do. I think right now it really depends on the markets and on the and the type of product that they have. So I think right now what they're experimenting, they say it's experimenting, but it's it's actually been pretty consistent. Is raising prices on the family plan because if you think about it this way if a family plan has three people or more 
and they're all using it. They all have their own profiles, playlists that they that they like, um, podcasts that they follow, um, and are fairly engaged with the with the product. Then it's fairly easy to to raise price when you've got huge engagement for one kind of uh, account, right? And then if you're talking about you know a new market where they're trying to grow and expand, they have a, and they have a lot of individual subscribers um then those prices probably for now is it's just a uh, probably hold stable especially in markets that are super competitive so they said that in the u in the u.s pricing is is probably not gonna be increased anytime soon but if you believe in what they're doing and their execution i think over time especially with family plans or dual plans if they if the engagement is continues to be very high i think that they will have that opportunity but i don't think um full disclosure i i own the stock but i don't think you you're buying the stock today because you just think it's going to be year after year price increases overall right um alex any thoughts on the pricing power any maybe headwinds or tailwinds they could have there yeah i'd say i i I generally agree with those comments and obviously it depends on the market i think at a high level you know they shared the stat that the average user uh, consumes about 25 hours a month. So you think about on their premium ARPU, it's basically a quarter an hour. And even for a, for a single plan at 9.99, that'd be what, 40 cents. So I think it's still an incredibly cheap product. As they mentioned at the stream on event, I think they haven't basically raised prices in a decade. Um, So even on a single plan, I feel like they actually probably have, more latent pricing power, even in markets like the U.S., than than they may uh, recognize or at least want to state publicly at this point. And I don't think they need to pull that lever right now, but I think it it might actually be there. And then as you think about things like duo plans, family plans, I think they've they've very smartly uh, learned lessons from what Netflix did uh, eight, 10, 12 years ago, and they're they're really following that same path and and recognize the importance of. Uh, things like LTV. So I, I think they're on a, in a very, very good spot. And I actually think they probably have more pricing power in markets like the US than some people might. Right. I think a lot of people look at, you know, Apple Music, uh, Amazon Music, and then whatever Google's got. And I, I never know what the, the name is uh, for whatever their ideas are. I think it's YouTube Music now. They look at that and they think, well, they have $10 or a month or whatever their plan is. It's very similar to what Spotify is offering. But Spotify's in over a hundred markets around the world. And I think in Europe, they have, a, you know, at least in the near term, a lot of potential to raise prices, but in the U S as well with the, I think a lot of investors maybe underestimate the lock-in with all the discovery playlists, whatever's saved on there. It sounds simple, but the, yeah. I don't know, Ryan, what do you think about that? I, as well? I think they gave a retention number too, like something like, I, I might be getting this wrong, but like 50% or higher of the people that, Turned came back after a certain oh, period. Yeah, yeah. I, so, I forget what the exact number was, but yeah. All right, what about uh, the subscription side? Do you do you think there's ever going to be maybe a subscription that's pure to podcasts? Like, uh, would they be able to charge for that? Do you think? And uh, maybe, I guess that one to, could go to Alex. Yeah, and then maybe also we get into the discussion: how does that fit into the pricing power as well, or if it does? 
I'm a bit torn on it. And I'll probably let Francisco talk here pretty quickly because we actually were just talking about this today before uh, the pod, but I've, I've struggled with how they uh, message the difference between a premium and an ad supported sub and how they're going to uh, deal with the realities of, of the podcast market, which for a number of reasons has uh, primarily monetized through ads. And I, I, I think they're of two minds in terms of how even they're going to approach that. So I don't, I don't love the idea of them splitting it out. I really think it's nice again, using the Netflix example to have a very clear offering to have a a bundled offering that meets a bunch of different, but relatively similar needs at the end of the day and to focus on doing that very, very well. But I think talking with, with other investors like Francisco, I'm not an investor, but people who are invested in the company, I think he's convinced me more than I probably believe six to 12 months ago that, that there is a place for some of these other things. So maybe he can talk to it more. I think, I think, you know, their, their kind of overall goal is to capture the, the audio market. Right. And that's a very fragmented market, even, even music. I mean, in a way you can basically get any song for free if you want to on, on YouTube um or some way online and i think ideally you could live in this world where you could have a netflix like service no ads one price we have everything or almost everything and let's go but music and audio is a little bit more complicated than that for the reasons i just said and you have also radio so capturing the incremental customer i think for Spotify, they've recognized that they have to be super flexible. They can have student plans, they can have duo, they can have family. The family has the the kids app. Um, if you just want to listen for free, you can have for free. And they've talked a lot about a la carte, which we really haven't seen what they what they want to do there in terms of tagging on uh, a, a service or a, a basically paying for a podcast individually. Um, as part of a, a larger subscription to Spotify. So in terms of adding a, a podcasting service that has no ads, it's, it's complicated for, for a couple of reasons. I'm very skeptical of, of anyone really doing this in the short term because think about any podcast. Think about your podcast, Alex's podcast. Uh, you could read an ad if you wanted to, right? Um, you could negotiate your own ad with maybe it's someone local, maybe it's a some uh, something that's finance related or something that's geared towards your audience. Um, Spotify, you, you can you upload your your podcast on Spotify. And Spotify can't really go there and delete that ad, right? If people just if they decide to have have a subscription service that's ad free for podcasting, so really do that, right? You have to control the ad inventory you have to be able to switch on and on on and off ads for for podcasting and i think they're trying to go there it's it's a long you know battle it's it'll take a lot of execution i think their acquisition of anchor and their acquisition of megaphone as megaphone in particular that deals with big podcasting networks and basically they sell ads and, and having the uh, the Spotify ad service at SAI um, integrated and then having more and more podcasting podcasts that leverage Spotify's ad tech 
and and basically data so that the CPMs and, and and the value of ads can be really high to the creators. And once you're there, right, and once they they if they're able to really control a huge ad portion of the ad inventory of their of the podcasts that are on Spotify, then you can think about having an on and off switch. Hey, pay three extra dollars and vast majority of podcasts won't have ads. But they need to be able to to do that. And that's they're they're, they're far away from that. And and frankly, everybody else is is even more far away from that. Like they yeah. would need to be to go to the New York Times and be like, hey, stop reading the the ads on the daily. Right. Because for two reasons. Will pay you really well if subscribers are listening to you uh, without ads, and will be able to pay you extremely well. It will be able to monetize your ad inventory even better than you can today. So I think the 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 answer is they want to be very very flexible in terms of the offerings that they have to to the consumers, but they have to be extremely flexible in terms of how creators monetize in the platform and and controlling really the ad inventory inside of and when i say ad inventory i mean for basically you guys read an ad as well so once they do that they can offer that so it would be very very bullish if they're for for investors if, if they're able to actually execute that in the highway and i think if anybody can quite frankly it's it's them yeah we use spot or we use megaphone for this podcast and we can- switched from anchor because anchor to be honest was doing pretty bad with their, uh, and that might be a low light that that acquisition isn't going that well, but their their advertising inventory was really not real. It was just advertising There's, itself yeah. or Spotify. Um, so yeah, I don't know, Ryan. You want to yeah, talk and but to touch on your point, we can we also do our we have a partnership with Seven Investing where we do that sort of during our dialogue, our conversation. So it's not necessarily an ad slot where they can just use ad insertions and just put it in there. Um, So I guess, yeah, that would be kind of tough to manage. Do you think there's ever a scenario and Francisco, you already kind of touched on it where it's almost like Substack, where you pay for access to one podcast, something like that, or is that kind of out there? Yeah. Well, I think that's what they mean about a la carte. Um, I think they, I think anchor is going to begin to test that as well. And I'm sure Megaphone will get there. I mean, they just really acquired Megaphone. And now they're allowing all of the Megaphone customers, and I'm sure over time, it's not a click of a button, to use um, Spotify's tech of, of, of integrating ads. So I think over time, I think that might change with you on, on Megaphone. And many of the podcasts that, that Spotify owns or basically are effectively control, though, it's kind of funny. They'll talk like they'll, they'll kind of put in the ad break. You know how there's like audio that kind of like switches and you know, the ad is coming where you listen to that, but there's no ad. Um, and I think <laughs> yeah. what's, what's starting to happen is that that won't last for long. Right. I think if they're starting to kind of get up and running in terms of how they execute this. Um, so I, I suspect um, like, for example, the, the Wall Street Journal has this really good podcast called The Journal. It's a partnership with Gimlet and Spotify owns Gimlet. And it's basically like the daily, the New York Times daily, but more for Wall Street Journal business stories. I think their podcast today was basically about the stimulus bill that just passed. But, you know, when the WeWork situation scandal happened, 
and they had a big one. It's very big news uh, story that their reporters dig on. We'll touch on that. But lot, the that podcast has those ad breaks sound. It never has an ad. And recently, I'm starting to see that, that, that actually the Spotify SAI ads are, are, are being added. So I think it's something that's it takes time and, and yeah. they're, they're getting, you know, putting the, the rails down to, to be able to execute. But I think it'll be interesting to see how megaphone over time, and you'll be able to see it real time, how that, you know, placing ads and, and dealing with Spotify changes. Cause I suspect it, it, it will change. Yeah. That's what yeah. they've been saying. I mean, yeah, it takes a while to integrate them, but are you kind of thinking that, that first you got to look at all right are people on spotify actually listening to podcasts because i know that number they throw out every quarter um i think last quarter was 25 percent of mau's uh engage with podcast content i don't know how they're defining that i, I think it is a little loose like you it's anyone that listens to more than zero seconds so that could be a little bit higher than um, who is actually listening but you have to get those people on and then it's all about anchor and megaphone if they can be the engine powering a lot of the creators, then they got a lot of tools to play with, to work with either, you know, adding a lot of podcasts to their subscription service that, or whatever, any subscription service that they make, or they make money more on, you know, it's free, but that ad technology can scale to any user around the globe and be fairly targeted. And I, yeah, I, I think over time, a lot of those sort of radio advertisers or that kind, I, I think it'll be a little bit like the, see the transition from of advertisers to ctv kind of in that market um i could see it being similar to that but yeah you're right there are right now with the lack of supply sometimes you'll hear the transitions like four times in a row because we because the supply is low but i i I feel like that'll go away over time um all right i would just add a couple points real quick just two seconds um i was well on on the numbers of the engagement numbers I, i don't know if they've given a great definition. So I think it's a fair point you make, but I would add that, you know, they throw out these numbers like 25% a year ago, it was 16%. It doesn't really mean anything. So I just pulled the, pulled the actual user numbers for last year that works out to about 44 million people. And for this year, it works out to about 88 million people. So they are seeing, you know, obviously the metrics only as good as the definition of the metric, but assuming it's actually a real metric, they've had pretty significant growth. And they also said on the call that, uh, podcast consumption, total hours nearly doubled year over year, which, you know, obviously on a per user basis kind of implies that it was about flat. Um, you know, you consider the fact that we had the pandemic and overall consumptions obviously been under pressure. And you also account for the fact that the incremental 44 million are obviously not like your power users who have been doing it for a while. So um, I think it's probably a better metric than it sounds like at first, at first glance. And then also they gave the metric on um, on the podcasts that are now on there, they have 2.2 million up about three X from last year. And I think they said the vast majority now are powered by anchor essentially. Is that the right way to frame it, Francisco? Yeah, I think so. I think, yeah, I, think right. I, I, again, I can't remember the exact number, but I think 80% of new podcasts I on Spotify, right. I think that are powered by anchor, uh, which I mean, that's a great sign. I also saw that something like they're in India, 80 like they saw 80 times growth mm-hmm. uh which could obviously go off a low base but again the they're really trying to push anchor worldwide i think uh but that's a little more um, down the line uh, and the, the one other point i'd add there too is when you listen to a podcast now where it's read in 
you know, I listened to a, a couple comedians and the funny thing is to note that they clearly just get an agreement with someone for like a month or two months of episodes. So if you're a regular listener, I'm just getting hit with the same thing over and over and over again, which is fine in some ways. It, it, it's what happens in a lot of advertising, but it also has a breaking point. And I think you hear companies like Roku talk about this more and more where, hey, we're not going to hit somebody with the same ad 25 times. We have the technology to make sure that doesn't happen. So in some ways, I think what what they're doing will obviously take time to to iron out, but I, I think there also is somewhat of a low bar in terms of what they have to do better than. So I, I, I think they might actually be able to get there over time. Right, right. That makes sense. All right, Francisco, what are your thoughts on the uh, the new hi-fi uh, thing that they lo- or they announced on the stream on event? Just kind uh, of a title competitor they're talking about. I think, well, well, they haven't set a price, but people are thinking it's probably going to be 20 bucks a month or at least higher than a family plan. Um, and yeah, I think, or go ahead. No. I, I mean, the, the way I think about it is, I mean, there'll always be, you know, very, very particular people in terms of that like to listen to, to their music or content in the best, most high quality way possible. Um, I don't think it's, look, I, is it going to be this, this kind of massive moment where they bring in a, a, a lot of revenue because of it and acquire so many more subscribers? I, I don't think so. But what I think it, it allows is, you know, think about, they always talk about two-sided marketplace and they want to make, they want to give you flexibility as a user. So if you are very, very picky in terms of how you listen to music or content, Yes, you, you might pay for that $20 or $15 or more uh, service, uh, the, the hi-fi um, subscription service with, with Spotify. You might be someone who, who doesn't care listening to a bunch of ads and the free, the free Spotify service, but they want to capture everyone in, 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 in that spectrum. And as a creator, you know, as we talked about right now, from the anchor, uh, you know, recording a podcast on your your speakerphone on your fo- cell phone using Anchor to go to the an- to the megaphone, you know, huge network and, and very high quality studios with you know the best uh, monetization way possible. And uh, so I, that's how I view the the hi-fi service. It's just more flexibility, just another toolkit into acquiring uh, subscribers. Any thoughts on that, Alex? No, I think that's right. I mean, I think management continues to be pretty clear that above all else, their focus is market share and ensuring they have scale. And I think they're they're going to go after everything they can, essentially, which uh, will go from the high end to with stuff like this and then all the way to the low end, potentially with all the card offerings. Right, right. Okay, and then oh, God, I was going right. to say, uh, do either of you know how that plays out with the labels, the hi-fi offering? Like, is it sort of the same kind of royalty distribution payments, or does it change at all? I mean, those are typically black boxes. You can kind of get. Um, I I don't think it. I, I think the labels would love to see them release that product because it has a higher ARPU, and they'll yeah. probably get the same economics. So, all else being equal, higher price, labels take more in dollar uh, terms. So, you know, I think the labels and, and you and you can tell from listening to to the conference calls, reading the, rele- the releases of, of Warner Music Group, which is public, 
it does seem like they really want Spotify to raise prices. And this is another way of raising prices. It obviously has higher costs because it's a, it's a you know, very HD type of audio, but I don't think it'll be like super more expensive for Spotify labels to do this. So I think labels would love to, to have it because it has a higher ARP. Okay. Okay. And then Alex, we'll start with you on this one. When you're looking at a company like Spotify, what is more important for you? Do you track, I guess, you know, the MAU growth, which is just the monthly active users that includes the, uh, the free tier or the premium subscriber growth? Yeah. I mean, naturally, I, naturally I keep an eye on both and, you know, I'd start here by saying just so we could put numbers on it. If you go back four years, they had 36 million premium subs. Now they have 155 million uh, and they had 70 million ad supported monthly actives. Now they're right around 200 million. So they've done a really good job on, on both sides of, of the equation. Um, you know, I think the premium mix, it was at about 35%. It ran up to about 45%. It's been flat here for the last handful of quarters at least. And, you know, it's funny, like, like most things in investing, it can, you can look at something like, like that and go, uh Oh, there's a problem here. They're not being able to convince their free users that they should continue to, they should pay for the service because they're using it enough and they should be willing to pay to not have ads. I think in this case, it's probably more of a, just a geographical mix issue as they, as they continue to grow in markets that are, you know, obviously not like, like the United States or Western Europe, somewhere like that. So just as an example, you know, they show that, um, rest of the world is about 19% of their business now versus about 12% two years ago. So, um, I think it's important to keep an eye on that because that obviously has to do with pricing power and whether or not people are really perceiving that they're getting good value for their money. So I'd keep an eye on those metrics, but I think you obviously want to watch both, both and hope that free continues to funnel into paid. Right. Francisco, any thoughts on that? No, I think, uh, I, I agree with Alex. You just want to continue to see the growth there and and maybe even faster growth at at uh, in terms of the free subscribers, the ad supported subscribers. Because that, like Alex said, it's it's a funnel, right? I think if you are a ad support subscriber that has huge engagement, right, the probability that you'll become a paid subscriber is is, is fairly high according to management. So um so I think it, especially in a way, it, it's even more encouraging if, if the ad supported subscriber growth continues to be you know, faster. Yeah, and I think I think they saw or said that somewhere around forty four percent of free users over time, on average, will transition to premium subs. Now, again, with new geographic mixes, um, and they are expanding to those uh, to eighty new geographies. So that might, in the short run, we might see more MAU growth. At least that's kind of my thought. And then there might be a little hit on the pricing power, but in the long run, it is all about that funnel. If they can keep it even close to, you know, that 44% conversion rate, if it drops down to a lower rate, if they're still converting at a relatively high percentage, I mean, the business should be doing fine. Yeah. I think um, you just wanted to chime in quickly because right before the investor day, um, they were in like, I believe it was 92 markets, a little bit over 90 markets. And then in the investor day, the, the stream on event, they announced that they were basically going to 170 total markets, right? So they were adding you know, approximately 80 markets in, in a day, right? And obviously a lot of those um, 
are markets that that probably need a, a more ad supported base to to get the growth kicking, and it'll be it'll take time for them to also increase ARPU there. Um, but um, to, to basically get those subscribers going and then get the engagement. I mean, the engagement in like I said, the engagement increasing uh, very rapidly ad supported is a premium and huge engagement in premium is a consumers being able to, to pay a higher price. So I, I definitely would want the, the ad supported base to grow as fast as possible. Right. Do you think the billion user goal, I guess, is realistic? I know they just launched into all those markets and Alex, feel free to chime in here as well, but we can start with Francisco. I think it's super realistic. I think when they first mentioned the billion number, it might've been like two years ago. Um, and I thought to myself, like, whoa, yeah, <laughs> that's going to take a long time. And I'm not sure if, it, if it's even real. But then you take a step back and, you know, right now they're at uh, 345. They're, they're growing at 20% a year. I don't think they, they anticipate that growth to, to decline. Like I said earlier, they're, they announced just they're going to be 80 new markets that, you know, has like a billion uh, internet users or, or more. If you think about global internet household broadband households, there are a lot of estimates, but I've seen it excluding China, which they're not in. Um, I've seen estimates like 700 million broadband households and then trending towards a billion over time. And households can have two, three more people, right? So you're talking about a, a huge base of, of internet users, of smartphone users, of high speed and quality internet usage that's just going to grow over time. So I think a billion is, is super doable. Um, the question is from, from there, how, how big thing can they really get long, long term? But I think a, a billion, a billion users is, is super, it, I think, I think they're going to do it. Um, and, and maybe a lot faster than what, where, what people, when people think they'll, they'll be able to achieve it, if at all. Right. I was looking at the, the populations and it's, it's rough. I know like it's, it's a little bit speculative, but you know, they're going into Nigeria, Pakistan and Bangladesh and all those populations have more than either 200 million people now, or will have more than 200 million people in 2025. Will a lot more of those be MA, like ad supported MAUs maybe, but I think over time, I mean, that, that seems really reasonable, especially, I, I don't know if they can catch, I think, what they estimate again is like something where the global streaming market could have upwards of 3 billion spread it over all the different properties, like maybe including YouTube, maybe as well, if they can keep their market share, which seems very reasonable to me, they could get to a billion as well. But Alex, I'll let you, if you have anything else to add on that. No, I think that's all right. And I, again, like Netflix and I think Spotify's announced their own, their own offerings as well. You can, you can kind of break down some of the paid offerings to get them into into bite-sized chunks that are more digestible in, in right. markets around the world where incomes are obviously lower. So I think as, as they go around the world, they're, this is a product that would basically have universal appeal. So, um, you know, obviously keeping 35, 40%, maybe more market share is, is a big part of getting there. And we'll see how effectively some of these behemoths that they compete with can uh, compete in the future. I think what you've seen so far would lead you to believe that Spotify will continue to have a dominant position. And if that's the case, then yeah, I think a billion is a reasonable number. Right. Have you guys seen, uh, sorry, 
Go ahead. I'll, I'll let you know you're in, but they, uh, have you seen the numbers out of India at all? Is that where I th- believe that they are close to, or if not the number one player in India after less than two years of launch, does that mm. get you optimistic about what they can do in other markets? Um, maybe Francisco, if you want to go first on that. I, I don't know um, of, of numbers, uh, Specifically towards India, I've read recent articles in terms of that they're, they're expanding there quickly. I think initially they had you know big minimum guarantees from the labels that uh, put pr- pressure initially, but they, they they were able to grow beyond that, and they're they're investing a lot in podcasting in India. But in terms of number of subscribers in India specifically, I don't know if Alex have seen figures, but I, I haven't honestly. I haven't seen anything in particular, but I'd make another point that's kind of tangential to this, which I think they said, this doesn't seem like it can be right, but I'm pretty sure this was the quote that 80% of consumption or 80% of listeners are outside of the market from the person who created that content. I believe they're referring to music. I don't know if that stat rings a bell with any of y'all, but my point being, I'm bringing it up that if this becomes more of a global market, I and I don't have data to support this, but my sense would be that that is... Uh, less less advantageous for the labels and it's partly in the data that you guys have shared previously which shows you know uh i think it was 84 percent of the music streams were the top four two years ago and now it's down to 76 percent, something along those lines yeah um yeah uh yeah i think it's 85 and 78 but yeah there you go so that's of music as well so you know obviously podcasts are increasing their share of ear uh, on the service so i think it's one of those dynamics that as this becomes more of a global business it might in some ways play into into Spotify's hands in terms of negotiating key suppliers. Well, I, I, I agree with that. I mean, I, I buy the, the, the stat from the company, Alex, because like, for example, I mean, uh, 20, I think 24% of MAUs are, are North America, right? So somebody obviously got some of the biggest superstars in, in the United States um, that are global stars, right? So, and not only that, I mean, you look at, the most popular artist in on Spotify last year was Bad Bunny, uh, singer. He's Puerto Rican. Obviously, he's super super popular in, in Puerto Rico, but he's the number one artist on Spotify. And um, obviously, Puerto Rico is a fairly small market, so I think a lot of people globally uh, obviously listen to him. And so I, I do think that's that's it's right. Interesting. It would be even more interesting if that stat can happen with a. Uh, podcasting but i think that's a little bit more difficult to deport you know a u.s-based investing podcast that's extremely popular in in latin america europe but i guess it could be i don't know um hey we were number three in the cayman islands yeah (laughs) (laughs) yeah but we i mean we we uh it's anecdotal but we do i mean it's kind of fascinating to look at that little chart like uh, that they put up for the globe for all the shows. And I mean, surprisingly, we have like a weird listener base in Sweden. So if you guys are listening right now, it's because we're Spotify shareholders. Yeah. Yeah. They're all, uh, but uh, I do think, yeah, the podcast will be a little more difficult because of the cross language. It's tough. I mean, we're not going to get many listeners in India if our show gets popular there just because of the language barrier. But Ryan, I think you have the next question. Yeah, Alex and Francisco, feel free to chime in as well. What are are you guys' timelines for evaluating the podcast investments that they've made? I mean, how, I guess, how quickly do you guys see these investments materializing or at least being a substantial part of the business? 
I think it's a pretty difficult question to answer. Um, one, because I don't know how easy it is to parcel out that one component's contribution to the value chain or even its cost, honestly. And number two would play into that second comment. I don't know if management's going to give you the data to do it to the extent that it even does exist. Um, so I would mostly look at, you know, it's funny, I, when I wrote an article about Spotify, I essentially said, what would you have told me about Netflix five or 10 years ago that in hindsight, I should have used as kind of uh, a guide to consider it more seriously as an investment. And the data point is user engagement and subscriber growth, basically. So I think about comments like, hey, Spotify said we have two to three X per sub engagement of our scaled competitors, stuff like that. So my point being, as they keep releasing podcast data, if we see a continued increase in the number of users, we see you know, higher per sub user, stuff like that. If they give those data points, for me, that would be sufficient. And then obviously you gotta, you gotta have trust in management to, to intelligently allocate funds around that. But I, I would definitely start getting skeptical if they started pooling data points like that. Okay, that makes sense. I think, Francisco? I think I agree absolutely with, with Alex. I think judging, you know, I think there's, there's two ways I, I think about this. Um, and I agree, it's really hard to partial out the data, even if we'll see if man management really gives detailed uh, data on podcasting. But the way I would think about it is, I mean, the, the holy grail for all these services and any streaming service, right, is, is super high engagement. So I think on one end, podcasts have to add to your engagement um, big time for, for in order to add users but keep the users that you have and monetize them uh, better over time and you want to open podcasting to in the morning to listen to a podcast in the car and then switch to music and then you want you know you want users to be using the uh, the spotify app all day in terms of date the, the clearest sign to me and and obviously engagement is, is really hard to read as an investor the trend is is probably more towards just continued um, strong growth in, in MAUs and, and, and premium subscribers. I think a, another clear way to see that they're really monetizing ads, and but I think this will take much longer. Um, like we'll we'll easily be say we'll be able to see hey, MAUs are growing twenty percent, twenty percent, twenty five percent, and and you can sort of understand that hey, uh, podcasting have to be working in some way, but. In, in the clearest way is really that the ad business is growing for the podcasting business and that it's monetizing very, very, very well. And not only is it recouping the cost of paying a, a Joe Rogan for the Obamas or, or for the all the new um, podcasting deals that they're signing that are some of them are expensive um, or some are very, very expensive, that basically the advertising is paying for that. Not only paying for that, it's creating huge operating leverage, right? Because you're, you're monetizing the base of podcasts um, that you own and, and controlling the imagery for more podcasts that maybe that they don't own. And monetizing that via ads is gonna, it should, at least in theory, expand margins in a huge way. But I think that's gonna take time. So I don't, it's not something we're gonna see in the next two years. Um, to Alex's point, I mean, they've done a lot in two years since they announced their big podcasting investments. So 
So in terms of the data, I mean, the MAU growth has to continue. And I think that's, it's hard to know, hey, is it really being fueled by, by podcasting? Is it being fueled by new markets? It's being fueled by, you know, other engagement tools, improvements in the app, um, partnerships, marketing. But I mean, it's some evidence that we have, but ultimately really, I think it's, it's uh, that operating leverage being, being you know, starting to really kick in. And because they put their costs, their podcasting costs, they put it under the, the gross margin for ads, that'll be the clearest sign, but that's going to take time. Right. Okay. And then I guess we were going to, we've talked about the ad network already. So I'll stick on the studios and exclusive shows. How do you think about them using that? Uh, you know, you mentioned the Joe Rogan experience, which I guess is another one, well, another tangent, because they do have the video offering with that, which we could maybe talk about a bit, but there seem to be using these shows to try to pull in new users. Um, I know they have that. Uh, what's the new one? The Barack Obama Bruce um, Springsteen yeah. one uh, that renegades renegades. Yeah. So uh, it seems like, okay, when you're investing this money in the show, it's not like they're really going to recoup all of it from the listeners. I kind of think of it as a customer acquisition cost. Um, but overall, what are your guys' thoughts? I guess we'll start with maybe Alex, uh, on the studios and exclusives um, and how they're using that. Yeah, I'm, I'm of a couple minds here. Um, I, I, I think to the extent that they wanted to go after this opportunity, it makes sense to invest aggressively as they probably have done so far. Uh, that being said, it's still early, so it might not be showing up in the PNL yet, but I've been surprised that, that gross margins have, have held on as well, as well as they have so far. Uh, maybe that'll change next year, we'll see. Um, you know, I, 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 I'm not too sure. Let me, why don't you talk for a minute, Francisco? I'm think about it some more. All right. Yeah. So, so I think two ways. I think they they want to have a ultimately a differentiated service, right? So, initially, like take the Ringer for example, right? The the most popular podcast there is probably you know obviously Bill Simmons' podcast, the BS Pod. And they're not going to take that down, right, from Apple Podcasts or Amazon Music or all the other podcasts that's distributed because it would just kind of kill the show, right? But what they want to do is that incremental investments that they're making with new shows, and there's one called 10 Questions that actually has video on the Spotify app. It's exclusive to, to Spotify. Um, the, the podcast Binge Mode, which they go to, like, go through all the Marvel movies, all the Harry Potter movies, you know, binge fandom and have like two hour discussions on every movie. Those they'll release them to all services. But once they cover like a subject like Marvel or Star Wars or, or whatever, it goes into library and the library is only available on Spotify, but the current season is available everywhere. So they're just beginning to kind of test new ways to have the creators work for Spotify, like make the Spotify service differentiated, right? So they want their creators to be highly incentivized to have listeners on the Spotify platform versus, hey, I'm, I'm Bill Simmons and I'm and having my podcast show right now, um, but you're listening to me on Apple. They, they really want it to be on, on Spotify. So, and those shows cross promote each other. 
that's kind of one way, right? I think Joe Rogan is clearly a, a different direction. Hey, this is the most popular podcast in the world, right? And if we have it exclusively, then obviously uh, we're going to be able to, to get a huge chunk of, of podcasting listeners from all services um, to come to our to come to our platform. I think that one of the stats that they said is that the Joe Rogan podcast, it wasn't on Spotify before, but apparently it was the most searched for podcast on the on the spotify app and it wasn't even available so that's super huge uh demand the other way right is um they they see the the podcasting space and the first thing that they think about right it's obviously adding a a, a different toolkit for for listeners right music and other type of audio they want all, all audio but the other way is like they see a, a super fragmented industry super super messy in terms of monetization you know, creators don't have data or a way to target target people and, and, and advertisers don't have that either, right? So it's a way that once you have your own content and a lot of content um, before they have like a couple creators in-house and I think now it's hundreds and hundreds of creators that they own in-house basically. Having that, right? And having that huge, huge content production capabilities in, in terms of audio will allow them to test different type of uh, ad formats and really integrate, have like a true vertical integration of having the user creator ads. Um, and that's what will get them over time to be able to offer advertising opportunities to all podcasts, which is something that will take time. So, right. It's, it's little by little adding different steps that over time will, will help them be able to monetize the industry better. So I think, you know, some things you'll see very, very quickly, right? They bought the Ringer, the Bill Simmons company, I think right before the pandemic. Yeah. Um, and, and now you're seeing signs of like, hey, all of a sudden, Bill Simmons pod has the transition sound, but doesn't have the ads. The new incremental shows that they're launching are... are are exclusive to to Spotify, so they're not like you know, kind of a, a Disney that buys this company and all of a sudden just makes that company work the Disney way, right? Um, plug it into their system. They're, they're basically you know they're new here, right? They're trying to do things little by little. Like you guys are on megaphone. They just bought that asset. I'm not surprised that you're you're not really seeing how it's integrated with SAI, but. Let's see what happens over the next two years, right? Yeah, I guess there, yeah, it does. Integrations don't happen overnight, but I do like that point of the exclusives kind of becoming the end, like uh, kickstarting that engine. If they're going to get that advertising going, because you got to get the supply and the demand. Um, you have to have both if that advertising network's going to work. And that, I mean, if they have like a thousand shows that they can really use, it's like, all right, well, we'll start you out with this, but then once. I don't know. Once then we can get you to every show on Anchor. But Alex, did you have any thoughts? I know you've tweeted or mentioned before about the video experience with the Joe Rogan. Uh, any thoughts on that or what Spotify could do there? That's what I was just about to add. That was funny. Funny thought of that. Yeah, I, I I think you know people like Joe Rogan, and I've heard other. It's funny. I've heard other uh, podcasters mention this that they you know when they travel, they still have to do the setup for video because so many customers want that. Really? So I think when when Joe Rogan came to Spotify. I, I think he's publicly said that obviously having video capabilities was part of what they would need or want. And then also 
they want the ability to kind of show clips and smaller videos. So I, th- I just think it's funny how they're converging a bit with with YouTube and some of these other platforms. And I think even talking about, um, you guys can correct me if I'm wrong, talking about artists, like on the music side, they mentioned the idea that now they'll have, sounds almost like a landing page of sort, it's sorts. And you can see an artist, you know, it's basically like a small interview or introduce a song or something. So they're kind of getting into these other areas that, you know, definitely blur the lines between audio, video, long form and smaller clips. I just think it's interesting to see how it's developing. Yeah, I'd, I'd agree. And the the, uh, the advertising side, I was going to ask you if you think it can be kind of like YouTube, but I think we've gotten into that with the, uh, the targeted. SAI. Yeah, the SAI type stuff. So I guess, do you think the future uh, or what do you think would be more important to podcast advertising that format of ads, whether it's like streaming ads, kind of like YouTube, where it just gets plugged in or ones where the podcaster, the creator is doing like an ad read for a totally exclusive sponsor. What do you think would be more, uh, what, what would you like to hear more, I guess, as a customer or a listener? Well, I'm sh- I mean, I'm, I'm sure that a, a lot of the rationale for SAI and things like this is that it's going to make sense for the creator and that it's going to obviously monetize better, which is kind of funny as Francisco was talking before success with SAI and Spotify, basically owning the landscape is kind of a necessary precursor to having a uh, non ad supported podcasting product. Right, <laughs> so you, right. you need them to succeed in ads in order to get podcasts without ads. <laughs> so, I mean, I think from both perspectives, I don't like listening. I mean, obviously for comedians, they make it funny, but I don't want to listen yeah. to somebody read the same ad 10 times in a month. If it's right. literally the same thing word for word. So I think SAI, like, like most advertising on the internet to the extent it actually reflects your, needs and desires it's a little creepy but at least they know what you want to buy so i personally prefer that and what do you guys think about uh or go ahead francisco now the next question well i i agree with alex and and look i think if you close your eyes and what's the ideal format is that right you can you know have ad free at a click of a button or have ads at a click of a button and the only way to do that right effectively is to have targeted ads and that can be slid in and i think so podcasters reading ads in in an ideal world i think for everybody just wouldn't happen right for that to read you know to get there it will take a long time uh but i think ideally you know that's what 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 you'll see right and what are your thoughts on the cpm uh or just the, the rates of what ads are going at like Right now, I think the standard is about $20 per thousand listens. Um, and a lot of people do uh, any sort of analysis where that's a lot lower than traditional radio. But if they can get that targeting up, people think, and it's a little bit speculative that I could get up to you know, the $50 to $60 range. Any thoughts on that um, helping them grow? You know, in terms of a specific price, right? I, I think I, ju- I would just be guessing, honestly, if I told you, hey, 50 or 100 or, or, or 10. But I mean, you know, wh- why is Facebook so valuable? Why are Facebook ads so valuable? Why are Google ads so valuable? I think what you want, what Spotify wants to do here is that, you know, an advertiser just doesn't even have to talk to anybody that go on their platform. Hey, males that are 18 to 25 interested in finance globally, bam. Yeah. And, 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 targets all those people. And I think that is obviously very, very valuable and probably more valuable than $20. Uh, 
or females uh, age 40 to 55 in a specific product in a specific geography, bam. Right. And this amount of people. Only people in North Carolina, you know, and that are looking for specific retail. I don't know. That's obviously the, I think what Daniel Eck is wants to accomplish. And um, if he does accomplish that, I think they are worth a lot more than 20. But we'll see. It, it also makes it, it makes life easier on our end or like the podcasters end because they can kind of manage their ad inventory. Like we can just set our rates lower if we're not getting a lot of supply and we don't have to read ads. And like Alex said, we don't have to have our listeners listen to our same ad rate on repeat. I mean, th- I think Megaphone had like a 50% take rate on our ad revenue and we are willing to do it just to just so that it was easier yeah. for us i mean we i think people are going to expect that to lower over time but the value right. proposition is, is very strong um for alex did you have anything on that before we go to the last no time? no i agree with all that all right well we'll hit to wrap things up we're going to talk about maybe the financial profile the valuation a bit because it, they have an interesting you know business model where the the gross margins are a little low so everyone seems to focus on that and we'll hit that a bit i guess first question uh, at the new investor day, which was a few weeks ago, they talked about the, the new guidance is a range of 30 to 40% on the long-term gross margins. This is up from 30 to 35%. And they said the big factor in that was 20% of revenue coming from, well, it's a range. They didn't give an exact number, but they said around 20% of revenue coming from this advertising business in the long run. Um, does that I'll start with Francisco. Does that seem realistic to you? The 30 to 40% guidance for uh, gross margins over the long term? I think it does. I think basically they only tweaked, if I'm not mistaken, um, I think when they went public, I think it was 30 to 35. Yeah. Yep. And I think they just said, well, now it's 30 to 40. Um, And I think, is it realistic? I think it is, right? Because I think when they went public, they were mostly thinking about, a music business so gaining scale and, and, and having huge growth over time will allow them to maybe take some negotiate with the labels to, to have a little bit more margin i think as you think about a you know an audio service right and um uh, and they're able to execute on all the things that we talked about in terms of you know podcasting content that they own the advertisements, uh, a la carte, then I think there there is significant, um, significantly higher gross margins and operating leverage overall with, with those uh, products. So could definitely be in the high end or higher, right, at, at, over the long, long term. So I think it's reasonable. Okay. Uh, Alex, do you have any? Yeah. Yeah, no, I think that makes, I mean, it makes sense. They're, they're, relatively close to that position today. I think as you think about things like SAI or, you know, even, even the tools they have uh, on the music side of the business to kind of get labels slash artists to, to basically be competing for placement. And I think they've said previously about 30% of the consumption is stuff that they essentially place for the user. So I think as, as they potentially build out these other sort of, you know, revenue lines that they can get that 500 basis points of margin, at least. Right, that two-sided marketplace, yeah. Forgot about that mm-hmm. as well. Perfect. Yeah, I mean, we haven't even talked very much about, we, we've talked a lot more about the podcast than the music side, but Alex, how do you think about 
the negotiating leverage between Spotify and the labels? Do you think it's shrinking for the labels over time? Or do you think if they, they still have the ability to just be like, all right, we're taking our content off if we don't get the price we want? I think it's still very difficult. I mean, the bigger Spotify gets, obviously, the better I think it becomes their negotiating position. The more engaged their customers are, the better it becomes. Um, you know, we'll we'll see how much of the global stats really impact that calculus. I think in some ways it probably does. In other ways, I'm a little bit skeptical. Um, so we'll see how it all plays out. You know, what, what's happening in South Korea, which I didn't really know about, but I think one of you guys linked to it, where they're they essentially went to market without access to, you know, a library from a from a label that has it's it's pretty important. I mean, it was thirty or forty percent of of the top one hundred songs in the country, and they still went to market um, without having that content. It, it this will be an interesting test to see how this plays out. And obviously that has unique circumstances with the, you know, the, the company they're negotiating with has their own streaming service. So it's kind of a unique uh, little fight we're having here, but I still think over time that my kind of base assumption is that their position relative to the big four labels probably doesn't change very much. Maybe they negotiate slightly better deals. Um, it'd be nice if as they, as they generate uh, incremental value for users and go to try to take price if labels didn't really participate in that as much as they will as of right now, as far as I know. Um, so I don't know if that's addressable in any sort of way. And again, the only other thing that comes to mind for me is finding ways where at the end of the day, you're really pitting them against one another to try to to bid or I guess as as they as they uh, nicely worded it, you don't have to actually put money out. You just get a smaller royalty rate when we give you the recommended yeah. uh, slot. So it's a nice little nice little way to market it. But if they can get them to compete for those placements, then that's another way to effectively get there. Um, as long as you obviously don't abuse that and kind of ruin your recommendation engine in the process. So it's a balance on all those things. But I think their position is continuing to get stronger. But I I still don't think it's a it's an assurance that in five years, they're going to be able to walk into the building and demand whatever they want. Right. Yeah. I they need that. each other at the end of the day. So yeah. yeah. Um, the bigger that they are, right. You know, they can't afford to lose a huge label, but the label can afford to lose them. So I think they have to play nice with each other. And I think that tells me, I think if they really get to the billion monthly active users, just the label can't live without them, right? But they also, you know, can't let go of some of the most streamed content. That's where the South so. Korea example is also interesting, again, because, you know, it is kind of a fight about this one market. And again, that company has a streaming service in the market, so they have a, a vested interest in continuing to maintain their presence there. But they are also negotiating on a global basis. So for Spotify, I think in some ways it will help them. I don't know as as well about the uh, the big four labels kind of geographic presence globally, but it might help them as they go in these markets and say, hey, we're basically big everywhere. Um, so you might have leverage against us in somewhere like the United States where we have a lot of competition, but we'll also be in other markets where we're the dominant player by far. So again, these are global agreements. So we have to we have to make this work everywhere or else it won't work anywhere. Right, and I think that idea of people made the comparison to like Netflix 
where they're like, they're going to break away from the labels entirely. And I, I really don't think that's realistic, but, and then, but the thing is yet, it's hard to ask or even find a path to where they get that margin. If it's not either a from just advertising or podcasts or B from this two sided marketplace stuff. And yeah, that, that is going to put a scene on the gross margins, but Ryan, yeah, that leads into my next question, which is what do you think is the most viable way to sort of have less dependency on the labels? Is it uh, growth in independent artists? Is it okay? Our listeners come to us for podcasts now more, or is there one path or do you think it's going to be sort of a combination of both? We'll start with Francisco. Look, I, I don't think they'll ever be, um, they'll never be, they'll always depend on labels, right? Um, the, the labels will always need them and they will always need the labels. And I think that's, that's how I would think about it. What, what I would also think about is how, I mean, two ways. How, how can they really add value to the user and the labels, right? They add value to the labels because they keep, growing right i think if you look at the the labels income statement a lot of the revenue sources have come under significant pressure but streaming is the their highest or one of the highest or the highest uh revenue stream for the labels and it's also very very high margin for the labels so they add a lot of value to the labels the value the labels add a lot of value to them if they keep outgrowing their comp- most of the competition globally and have the biggest market share, they said they want to have a third to 40%. I guess some markets will be on the high end of that or even much more, and some markets might be like a third. Um, but if they continue to add that value right to the labels and the labels depend on them, right, they have to play nice with each other. Um, it's not going to be a situation, I think, that one is just going to, crush the other anymore um i think if you if you're a new streaming service right and and you launch in a market labels are going to put an extremely high minimum guarantee for you for you to launch right and i think that's hard for almost anybody to to accomplish but you know so this is a this is a limited game for 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 a few companies so the, the way I think the way that Spotify makes them, themselves indispensable is just they add too much value to the labels, right? The, the, the labels need them because it's just Spotify adds too much value to them. And that's where they can kind of have a meeting of the minds over time in terms of how, you know, they can both have good businesses. But in terms of one crushing the other, it's just too hard. And to Alex's point, it's a, it's a good experiment what's happening there in South Korea because if they're able to kind of get to a place where actually the, the competitor label has to sit down with Spotify, then maybe you have a situation in certain markets that Spotify can temporarily drop a label um, in order, to, you know, kind of what happens a lot in the, in the pay TV space, at least it did has, has over time where there's blackouts and things like that. And somebody eventually wins. I don't think Spotify wants to get there or the labels, right? Because the labels also got to pass money to their artists, and their artists all of a sudden it's like, well, hey, why aren't you on Spotify? Are you, you know, this is like malpractice. Then, as soon as they have a, a new deal coming up, they'll leave to another label. So it, it's complicated. Um, 
is complicated, but I do think I feel confident that Spotify does provide enormous value to labels um, and artists, and they're going to be the biggest play. They are the biggest player by far globally, and will continue to to be so. And I mean, at at, at some point, it's just uh, you know they just have to play nice. Yeah, I think they. Yeah, it is definitely sort of a calm complex uh solution to that problem and the other part is the most favored nations clause makes it that much stickier where you can't you can't like uh give a good rate to one of the labels or have different deals with each one so well um, what do you guys do you guys have any thoughts on the independent artist stuff because i know a lot of you know investors and people just talking about how spotify made that one investment in or they had this. Uh, it was a sneaky investment. Yeah, yeah it was like a, a minority investment. They didn't. It was thinly disclosed. And they had a record with Spotify thing that got shut down. Do you think that was? It seems like that was what Spotify was talking about for a few years, but they've kind of transitioned away. Do you know if there's any reasons why that happened, or if they maybe just saw that that was never going to compete with the labels? Um, I don't know. Any, any of you, either of you can take it. I think Spotify realized that they were never going to be a label, right? Um, I think that's a short answer and it was just going to take too long and it might have too many conflicts. And I think the, the, the best way is just, you know, to, to basically negotiate with labels over time. Um, so I don't think, um, look, I think what Spotify does want, right. Is that, um, more and more artists are, are monetizing well. So they don't, what they don't want is like super mega concentration. They want like, you know, the top, you know, they say like millions of, of artists living off their art and, you know, billions of users uh, being able to consume it. But I think what they want is like look, hundreds of thousands of, of artists and creators to be able to monetize it more and more over time. And I think they don't want it just to be, like the bad bunnies and drakes and 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 the beatles back catalogs and that's it right they just want way more variety and diversity of, of content at the very very high level and i think if they accomplish that over time right um and i think the internet naturally helps that um it, they'll be fine uh but they don't want it's like hey Warner Music has everything, and you know what? You just got to deal with them. It's actually better that there's three labels and and they're more independent and, and breakout stars out of nowhere, just more and more and more and more. Um, because when you have these two-sided markets, you you want as much, you know, obviously as, as many users as possible, but a ton of creators monetize. Um, so that's how I think about it. Yeah, I'd say even one other point too, even we talk about it, we talk about the labels as if they're one kind of company and it certainly feels that way. They're almost kind of, they almost almost operate as one. And I think, again, going back to these kind of new tools that they're introducing to to let people bid for placement, essentially it's, it puts it back in a place in my mind where they're kind of competing with each other again and then become competitors. And hey, if I'm an artist and one label can get me X number of streams and the other label can get me two X that many streams. You know what I mean? I think it starts to, it starts to make it a little bit more of a competitive dynamic than maybe it was in a prior era. So that will work to the benefit of Spotify in a lot of ways, I think. Right. We saw like 
it seems that they're flipping it a tad into their advantage. Uh, there's that book out uh, by the Swedish reporter called the Spotify Play or something like that. And they outlined in like the 2010 to 2015 era. It There's no hard evidence, but it seems there's a lot of circumstantial evidence that the labels were kind of colluding against yeah. Spotify. And now they're really not able to do that. So I do think that point. Makes sense, Ryan. Did you have anything on that? Uh, kind of a random question. We didn't have it here on the tear sheet, but what do you guys think of the title acquisition by Square? And do you think that will have any bearings on Spotify's future at all? You want to go first, Alex? Or do you... I mean, I was just hoping that Spotify would try to do a deal with Wells Fargo after that happened because my Wells Fargo <laughs> my Wells Fargo position needed some help. Um, no, I don't. I don't. I don't really have any thoughts on it. I don't totally understand it. I mean, I get this whole idea of of the creator economy and the and the idea of you know some of these platforms. I think of Twitter. I, I'm not too sure why it fit into Square versus Twitter. Um, that's something for Jack to understand. You know, they went out and bought Review. I also I wonder in some ways it wouldn't have made more sense to do a big deal and go out and buy Substack. But I understand what they're trying to do in some of those places. And as people like us know, Twitter is a great place to those, those social networks are a great way to really build your audience and to find customers, listeners, whatever it may be. So I, I understand it from that perspective, why some of these integrations are starting to happen, but how Square fits into that, I, I don't entirely know, or how it's not best solved through a partnership of some kind or a relationship versus, you know, outright ownership. I, a little too galaxy brain for me, but. Yeah. Yeah. Francisco. I think, I think- Here's what I would um, think, and I'm going to do some off-the-cuff um, search in the uh, the Apple uh, App Store on, on Tidal. Their number... Look, I, okay, let's, let's buy the theory, right? They uh, have artists, you know, be able to monetize their, their work better. There's some kind of crypto angles there um artists also are are big owners of, of title and, and obviously led by by jay-z and i think they'll be super influ- influential there and but the fact of the matter is that they just have not been successful in acquiring users and as i look they're number 31 in the apple app store in, in the music category right uh you know, basically a random ringtone apps are like outranked them. Um, <laughs> yeah. I, I looked after they announced the deal, they had 3 million subs in 2018. And as far as like, I looked for a decent amount of time, they haven't updated it ever since, which tells you everything you need yeah. to know <laughs> and about how that's doing. Spotify <laughs> is number one, Pandora's number two, and Pandora's, you know, listener base is, is actually going, going down. Um, and they're number two and titles in the thirties. And, you know, it's, it's very, you know, we'll see, maybe Square has some interesting ideas. They'll invest more money. They'll, they'll have artists kind of control their, their monetization more closely potentially, but at the end of the day, they, they have been, haven't been successful in acquiring users and very skeptical whether they can even take that globally in a huge way. And the biggest thing you know that the biggest differentiator i think that they had from a user perspective was the the hi-fi type of audio and i think now you know amazon has that and 
and uh, Spotify is going to launch that and probably a matter of time before Apple launches that. So we'll see. I mean, it, it, it's, it's tough. It's, it's very, very competitive. Uh, Spotify updates their app with new features consistently, consistently, and works at, you know, every little single way to acquire um, users and subscribers. And they do a bunch of updates in terms of how to make it just a little better for artists. Um, and that takes time. And so I don't, you know, I think Square might bring more capital here, but I don't think they have, you know, anything to add in, in terms of how they they can help, you know, title make a huge boost. So yeah, we'll see. Yeah, the uh, I, I would honestly think TikTok would maybe be. The, there was rumors that um, they were going to announce uh, a streaming service, and that seems like way more of a threat to Spotify. Uh, but we'll wrap things up. We don't want to go this too long. Uh, we're going to wrap up with just kind of the, the free cash flow margins because I know a lot of people care about, and rightfully so, what Spotify's actual profit margins will be at scale or even in the near term. So. We'll start out with Alex. Uh, what reasonably do you think they can, what kind of free cash flow margins do you think they can reasonably achieve at scale? Yeah, I would assume, I mean, I would assume for this business that the free cash flow margins are going to be, you know, relatively comparable to the, to the net margins after, you know, adjusting for stock-based comp and things like that. So I don't think there's any huge uh, recurring dynamics there as far as I know, uh, maybe some, some slight temporary changes in timing. Um but at, you know, at an income statement kind of level, I can't remember if they gave these numbers beforehand or if they just gave them uh, with this, you know, the stream on event and things like that. But I always assume this is kind of a, a low 30s gross margin business at, at scale. Um, and if they, if they could leverage operating expenses as, as seemed reasonable, you know, once they get to five, six, seven hundred million subs, I assume it's the kind of business that can get to, you know, low double digit operating margins and and now it you know they've kind of quantified it and landed in the same area um i think again as we see things like sai two-sided market all, all that sort of stuff if that starts to work then you kind of have line of sight to this being mid-teens potentially getting high teens um if they can they can really drive gross margins up towards 40 percent. so i'd be watching those type of things because obviously it's a huge lever in terms of you know what the real earnings power will be at the end of the day but I think it's at least 10%, uh, 10% plus at, at maturity or at scale. If you uh, had to guess sort of a terminal multiple, if it were like, let's say 10% free cash flow margins was uh, their scaled margins, uh, what multiple would you get it, do you think? Or, and, and obviously with the, you know, the business model, the subscribers, the, the, the low churn, it's kind of hard to tell, but is it something where it's going to be similar to Netflix or... Uh, I don't know. Or is that even not a game you like to play? Look, I mean, when, when is the terminal date, right? Um, how big they are at that date. Uh, look, but I think the, the fact of the matter is, right, this is a, a very, you know, kind of captive audience type of business, recurring revenue nature type of business, especially, right? If, you, if you're, you have a huge user base and a huge part of that is premium or a highly engaged user base that on a monthly basis, that'll provide a lot of uh, advertising revenue. So that type of business, right? It's not a, a business that has to 
win their entire customer base every single year, right? So there is more of a recurring nature here. And I think those type of businesses deserve a, a higher revenue multiple than on average because it has a lot more certainty in terms of their revenue stream. Um, so I don't like, it's, it depends on what date we're talking about here. Right. I think if we're talking about a, no, a more normalized uh, state, it could be, you know, a lot higher than a than than a market multiple. Could be more comparable to to, you know, kind of what a Netflix is getting at. But I think Netflix is a difficult comp as well because they're not at their normalized revenue state. But if you look at maybe like a Microsoft, which I know Alex knows really well, has a very high multiple. It's a very very high, valuable business and with a lot of recurring revenue. So maybe at the multiple like that, that probably might be in their 30s, high 30s or more on today is perfectly reasonable because if, if we sit here where we have 345 million monthly active users uh, of, of revenue and, and that's going to be over their management's projecting that it's comfortably over 400 million MAUs by the end of this year. You're looking at around close to $11 billion in USD in revenue this year. Um, if we're really if you're, you're, you're buying this business, you, you trust and, and believe that the, the execution will lead them to a billion monthly active users. So we're talking about, you know, two, two and a half times uh, the user base that, that they'll have by the end of this year. Um, so maybe call it three times the, the revenue base uh, in the medium term, I mean, it depends what you define medium term and long term, right? So, you're, you're talking about potentially, um, you know, mid thirty billions towards forty billion in revenue that they could potentially have in five to seven years. You know, huge range, right? Of possibilities here, especially if they really execute and I say, I think you're really going to get to the higher end of that range. And if we're talking about a ten percent margin on that, right? And, Let's let's be optimistic, right? Let's say they, they really can get to forty billion dollars in revenue. You're talking about, you know, a, a forty, a four billion dollar kind of uh, operating, you know, uh, income or, or or more of a uh, unlevered free cash flow, and you're sitting here. I, not sure where the market cap is, given that it's, it's falling, falling down so much and so volatile recently. But let's let's call it like approaching fifty billion. That you know does not look uh, insane, right? And if they do execute on this, it'll be one of the most important media businesses in the world, and it'll be the most important audio business in the world, right? Um, and that's certainly worth a lot, m- much more than uh, than a. Uh, Oh, OTs are, are 10 times type of multiple. So okay. we'll see. Yeah. Um, Alex, did you have any on that? And then we'll, we'll finish things up. Yeah, no, I, I think I generally agree with those comments. I mean, the management kind of alluded to this with their, you know, they kind of gave a long-term framework that can get you to similar numbers, 40 to 50 billion in revenue. And, you know, maybe the next seven, eight, nine years, um, you know, if, if you, if you apply a 10, 15% margin on that, you're at, four four to seven and a half in operating income um and it's probably at 50 today so you apply appropriate discount rate yeah you're probably looking at the low end of that you're looking at paying 20 or 25 times um 
which doesn't sound crazy to me. So again, disclosure, I don't know it right now, but I, I think it's, it's an interesting idea if you believe the story. All right. I think that's all, yeah, that's all our questions. I think, uh, yeah, we agree with the, I don't know, those, uh, that multiple stuff, <laughs> all that, all the margins there. That seems very reasonable. Yeah. Um, hopeful yeah, shareholders, I guess. Yeah. Hopeful. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, well, we got three optimists here. One, uh, one guy that's pretty optimistic and, uh, Plus, I hadn't even considered the Wells Fargo partnership angle. If that <laughs> There you go. That's where all the optionality is Look, yeah. I think one thing I would add, and I know uh, we've been going time, you guys, um, but it, like, how do you destroy this business, right? If if they're not able to get continuously higher engagement from the user base and grow it, then you know it doesn't matter, right? It, it's it's going to be worth a lot less, right? Um, but what kind of optionality do they have if they are actually? Had a billion users, right? If there are a billion users, the a la carte model has infinite possibilities. And and what are other types of optionality you have, right? You have two billion in cash, and that, then they raise a billion three in in the exchangeable bonds, which are kind of an interesting vehicle that Alex and I uh, instrument that Alex and I have debated. Um, yeah, I'd so love to hear. Well, maybe I'll say that for another time, but I'd love to hear. Um, Cause we talk about that. The, the 1.3 it's, it's convertible, but it's 0% rate. It seems. Well, it's not really convert. It's exchangeable, oh, right? It's exchangeable. Okay. So they, it's not a convertible bond. So they don't, it's at their option. Um, and look at if, if they, if the underwriters fully executed it, which we don't know, given the, we'll know soon, but let's say they did raise a, a billion and a half, right. And they had like 2.2 billion. Right. So, Gives you close to four billion dollars. They have a two billion dollar stake in, in Tencent Music. You know, my question is, what? Why did they want all that capital, right? Because I don't think they just want to raise capital for raising capital's sake. And they had plenty of liquidity. There's interesting possibilities in terms of how they can put that to work, and um, and I think if if they continually do execute and grow and have engagement, and the market cap goes down by half. Seems kind of crazy for for a big player or somebody not to take a ginormous stake in this, but so I don't know. I think I think that's kind of your margin of safety in in in, in my eyes. It's really their execution. So which might sound weird as a yeah yeah. As a no, the last option. thing I was going to say it actually dovetails perfectly to that, and I I, I was going to say one thing I think I've learned from from watching Spotify and researching the name is there's something interesting about a business that has completely undifferentiated supply or did for a long time. They, they offer the same product essentially as their competitors in terms of the songs you would listen to on there. When you see a company like that, that is undifferentiated in a lot of ways, but still manages to have a meaningful share of the market and continues to do that for a long period of time. It's a really interesting situation that probably de- deserves a closer look and maybe either your assumptions that it's undifferentiated or somewhat flawed, maybe in terms of the product that actually is differentiated or to Francisco's point, they could just be better at executing than some of their competitors. But either way, I think when you see a company like that, it, it probably deserves some some attention. Right. That's that's a good way to wrap it up. Yeah, they. Uh, we don't have any more questions, so thank you guys for coming on. All right, welcome back in. Thanks, uh, I guess, in advance to uh, Alex and Francisco for coming on. So hot water. Want me to go first? Go ahead. Yeah. Okay. You're, I, this is the Chamath thing, right? 
Well, we can start with that. Yeah. Uh, maybe we don't have the same one, but Virgin Galactic shareholders are oh, in hot yeah, water. Yeah. Uh, Chamath apparently sold all of his shares. Uh, he commented on it in a bit of a strange tweet thread, but he said he's selling them to work on a new big climate change investment. Do you <laughs> think – and first of all, he, I would say res- – Resoundingly, he got a lot of flack from just about everyone. So yeah. it wasn't like people were cheering him on for this. Um, do you think people are starting to come around to the fact that maybe he isn't there for the little guy like he proclaims? I will say, yeah, definitely. I mean, I'll look at this Reddit thread where they talk about this guy. It got so many upvotes on Reddit. Uh, who he's kind of—I don't want to say he's been Reddit's champion. He really hasn't. Uh, oh, it was deleted. Dang. It had a lot of upvotes, votes, but it said Chamath, Polyapatia, due diligence, snake oil salesman. It goes through all the kind of sh- shady things he did. And then the first comment was, uh, he also skipped leg day. And that got even more <laughs> um, likes. Everyone knew the uh, the selfie. The, the, old, the old selfie he did. But there's also, uh, there's a lot of tweets and stuff that makes it seem like, oh, wait, this guy might not know what he's doing. Because what the S&P the, outperformance thing? The 56% difference thing, I it's. I hope this lasts for a few years. Like People are going to tweet that. <laughs> and uh, it's, a great, uh, it's a great format for uh, funny tweets. I know it's right up like a Michael Batnick or Miles Udland. Miles, if you're listening, yeah. <laughs> we, we do appreciate those tweets. Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I'm, yeah, I'm totally it's, off this guy now. Yeah, it's concerning. And if you're not sure what we we're talking about, he basically said he's beating the S&P by 1%. Um, but he divided the percents together, which... So... That's not... Which then he's... Which it was like 3 versus 2%, so he's like, we're beating it by 50%, which mm-hmm. he's not wrong. Uh, well, hopefully the S&P <laughs> is flat for the year, so we can tell our clients we beat the S&P by infinity percent. Yeah. Okay. Or, or trailing by infinity. You know who's even in probably worse hot water than him? Uh... Ross Gerber. Uh, so I think Ross Gerber and Chamath had some falling out. Not that no, they were ever really? great friends because Chamath uh, like insulted him on Twitter and now Ger- Ross is butthurt about it. Whatever. It's petty things. But <laughs> yeah, anyway. It's very important stuff. Because he because Chamath sold his shares, Ross Gerber thought it was a good chance to dunk on him. And he's like, I know one SPAC that I would never touch that's not generating any revenue. And it's like – and. He's like, I'm not going to name names. And everyone knew that he was talking yeah, about yeah. Virgin Galactic, but he owns it through the ARC uh, ETF that he owns. Oh, man. Yeah, that's great. If you're a financial advisor, a wealth manager, <laughs> he, or whatever, and you're you're charging 1%. He owns what t- he's saying he would never own. Like, how yeah. do you let this guy tr- run your money? No, I'm just going to say, yeah, it totally makes sense. You're charging 1%. You're getting charged 1% to hold money with this guy. And then he's going to take that money that isn't already get you know, you're the 99% of your invested dollars each year, and he's going to put it into another strategy, another active strategy that the one percent not controlling. Ratio. And then it's another, is it basically another 0.75% given to ARC. Yeah. That's a great use of capital. Bitcoin is also in hot water. Coinbase CEO Brian Armstrong has a compensation package that may grant him a million dollars per day every working day for the next three years. Keep well, in mind, it's a million I mean, dollars. Fiat yeah, dollars. I was Can say, you well, believe it, that? It's in fiat, but... Uh, what if 
uh, that's that's something that should happen. It should be mandated that any Bitcoin exchange executives should be forced to be compensated in cryptocurrency. Well, tell me how to do it. They still don't know how to do it because remember when uh, Russell Coombe was like, I got paid my NFL salary in Bitcoin and he got paid in dollars and then converted to Bitcoin. And then people were like, it was a classic Matt Levine money stuff column. He's like, I got paid in salads. I got paid in dollars and then converted my dollars to salad at the grocery store. It's the same thing. Uh, but either way, that's egregious. I don't know. All right, egregious. What, Coinbase uh, is going out at a million dollars a day. That's If you look at Coinbase's, I understand that profit margins are great, but there's no way those don't get obliterated. You're, you're telling me people are going to buy Coinbase's IPO at $100 billion? Also, get, get out of here. Get maybe, out of here. Like, uh, it's don't you think trading is kind of dependent on the price of their currencies? Yeah. Like maybe I'm wrong, but no, you're right. Nothing changes sentiment like price. And the more the Bitcoin goes up when Bitcoin's doing well, I had the same concern with the cash app. Like it's going to get more transaction volume, but they actually have, I mean, cash app has a real business behind it. <laughs> well, I want to, yeah, I want to say that, but, uh, all right. What do you, do you have anything for current state mm, or not? Or uh, hot, hot water? water? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I mean, there's so many right now. AT&T, they're getting sued by the SEC and they're getting investigated for misleading investors back in 2016. And I'm assuming constantly. Um, so what? executives went out to 20 analysts in 2016 to tell them to lower their earnings estimates so AT&T could, quote, beat their estimates for the, cor- the quarter. Fun fact, the CFO that was there uh, during this time is still there. There's also these, uh, well, I got some tweets. Life from- lesson. Always keep expectations low. You'll be yeah, an overachiever. Exactly. So uh, I got these tweets from Footnoted, uh, who has some highlights from the legal documents. Quote, fearful of a revenue miss at the end of the quarter, AT&T's chief financial officer destructed, instructed excuse me, AT&T's IR department to, quote, work the analysts who still have equipment revenue too high. Work. Yikes. Work those analysts, yeah. And then, uh, <laughs> totally work. and then this one's even more damning. On April 25th, 2016, the day before AT&T reported its Q1 2016 earnings, the last of approximately 20 analyst revenue reductions brought the consensus consensus estimate just below what AT&T knew it would ultimately report. AT&T's CFO emailed the IR director, we may just beat revenue consensus. The IR director replied, I think we will, smiley face emoji. And then they forwarded that to the CEO. Yeah, I mean, I can't touch AT&T. I mean, it's bad. I mean, that balance sheet's crazy bad. That's the thing is you take a good concept and you just douse it in leverage and bureaucracy and you've got a problem like or earnings estimates seems with it's the same with auto companies you know, uh, they can or, have a terrible yeah. valuation but it's like it's still something i never want to own it feels mm-hmm. too big too like something bad's bound to go on yeah and the earnings estimate stuff just don't pay attention to earnings estimates if anyone beats or misses just ignore it. Don't even look. Like it, it really doesn't matter. And also, earnings, I'll say, don't matter. Cash flow is the only thing that matters. Uh, but I will move on to my next one. QQQ is in hot water. Uh, small cap value is officially beating it over a one year period. Uh, dumb question, and not how we like to invest, and not how really anyone invests. But what horse would you choose over the next five year period? Kind of a tough one. What do you, what do you think? So QQQ what do you mean horse? What, uh, the, the ETF. QQQ, large cap NASDAQ, you know, large cap growth kind of tech companies. 
small cap value ETFs are the Russell 2000 value, I think. I believe that's the index. It's a tough uh, question. Yeah, I don't know. Maybe Neither. small cap value, I guess. I don't know. Ask the O'Shaughnessy's. Give it, just give it to the O'Shaughnessy's or any of the quant managers to ask. Yeah. Okay, last one. Sorry, I'll make this quick, but we'll, we'll get to the end of the show. Greensill Capital. I'm telling you, there's so many people in hot water this week. This UK financier is going under. They're bankrupt. It is a supply chain financier, uh, but really hard to tell what they do. It is important because they issued over $143 billion in 2020. So pretty important business. Again, I really don't know what they do. Uh, but they are going bankrupt. It will be interesting to see how this story plays out. Fun fact, you might guess, they were backed by SoftBank Vision Fund in 2019 with $1.5 billion. Uh, ben Hunt had a good tweet about how there's a ton of self-dealing here. Uh, I don't know how this show turned into the self-dealing and fraud show, but it's, uh, I guess, kind of fun uh, theme. Uh, he said, Greensill made $1.1 billion in, quote, loans to its two biggest investors, SoftBank and General Atlantic then laundered the deals through a German banking sub and Credit Suisse. Buying a bank and having it lend money to you and your portfolio companies is a classic fraud, but even better is co-sponsoring a SPAC and having it buy your portfolio companies so you can get a promote on both sides of the deal. Well, that's uh, interesting. Also, I, I, I don't know what, it just, it seems like so much of this stuff just goes down. I don't know. It's 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 bad. The you can yeah check market sentiment by the amount of hot waters we have because or if we have a whole fraud. bunch of them then maybe something stuff's gone down. But uh, is that all you have? Yeah. It's okay. okay. Uh, buy sell hold. The theme this week is companies that have had large sell offs. Uh, so Ooh, companies that are like okay. actually good, kind of interesting. Uh, Unity, Roku, and Shopify. Oh, they're still <laughs> they still need a large haircut in my opinion, but. Yeah. Could be wrong. Could be wrong. At their current price, well, other than Unity, we said they needed a large haircut yeah. like three or four months ago. Gosh. I'm going to rank the businesses I like the best. I'm just going to rank them. I'm sorry. I'm cheating. I like Roku one. Business seems so good. Yeah. Two, Unity. Really strong value proposition. I don't understand it that well. Don't think I could ever invest in it uh, unless I understood it more, the competitive positioning in that industry and then three Shopify I just I think they're not gonna grow that much I don't think everyone's gonna be an entrepreneur I don't know maybe I've been wrong every time on Shopify but man that's a yeah there are I guess some concerns I don't know unity would probably go down as my number three because the uh, whatever they get so much mobile ad revenue and Mm, IDFA or what I don't know how that plays out so that would probably go third on my conviction list there Roku's yeah Roku's number one it's It's a business that I really really like it's still gosh I don't know what the haircut what haircut it needs but well, I would love it. Started with thirty percent, I think. Well, let's get Still let's get uh, let's get some more. Let's just get some more. Okay. Um, anecdotal evidence this week. I didn't really have that much. Uh, I guess I watched a lot of Netflix. Kind of solidified my thinking that I'll never get rid of it. Yeah. Seems very unlikely that I'll ever get rid of it. Uh, but also, I used Lemonade for rent. Yeah, for the whatever renters insurance. Uh, uh-huh. Sleek. 
I don't know. I don't know if that warrants evaluation. Uh, One little piece right there, but I'll tell you, my apartment, the they had an insurance company, wasn't Lemonade, partnering with Renters Insurance, and it took two minutes as well. How much? Minus five dollars a month. No, no, I I think it cost. Yeah, it cost a little more, but it was embedded and like it was quicker. So I I don't know. Okay. All right. What uh what do you have? Okay, so Dennis Hong had a good tweet, uh light nice little graphic about what retail investors plan to do with their forthcoming stimulus check and a stimmy. lot of stimmy. stimmy. <laughs> yeah. The sorry, gotta get the term right. Uh a lot of people are planning to put it into the stock market. Now, I don't know what reality will be, whether you know, people say they're going to do things all the time and then don't do them. But if we look here, age 25 to 34, 50% say they're going to put this part of their stimulus check in the stock market. Um, at GME income calls. Levels, GME calls. Yeah. That's where uh, it ought to be. A lot of the, I mean, most of the numbers here, unless it's age, the age group 55 and up or the income levels below 25,000, basically everyone here has in between 30 and 50% for different age groups, income levels. And investing experience, there's gonna. I think there's gonna be a lot of demand here. But my thought is, and this is again, it doesn't. It's not like, I don't know. I, I it, okay. If growth stocks continue to get a correction, I think less of it. If this money gets put into the market, yeah. And if it has a nice comeback and stocks are gaining, you know, ten percent a month like they have for, or some of those, not yeah. uh, have been getting even more. Then even more money will get put in, um, but it'll be an interesting time. I think the next you know six months are going to be kind of crazy. Feels, feels like there was a generational gap in financial literacy. I, I it, getting originally, if someone told me that people were going to take their stimulus checks and put them into the stock market, I'd be like, "That's great, like financial participation." But I'm worried where that money's going. Eh, and how yeah. much of it's being funneled through Robinhood? I hope, yeah. I mean, you you hope it's not just on uh, options because ninety eight percent of that money just gets lost, which would be disappointing. Got to put in some, some target date funds, get you up on a uh, sixty forty or whatever. But uh, I right. don't know. It'll be I don't know. It'll be crazy. Is that all you have? Uh, no. Last thing. Sorry, we'll wrap things up. Arizona House of Representatives have just passed a bill that forces app stores to allow third-party payments. Now, I'm not sure exactly how this will play out internationally or nationally in the United States for Apple and Google, but does this excite you for any companies that are basically app-based that have been bogged down by the expenses from Apple and Google where basically 15 to 30% of their gross, or sorry, cost of goods sold? No, or, no, sorry, no, no, sorry, no. not 15% of their rev, 15 to 30% of their revenue yeah. gets taken and given to Apple and Google. My first thought is Match Group, if that got taken away, their operating margins would jump to like 50%. Um, but I'm sure there's other examples of companies that could do a lot better if that got taken away. Yeah. Match Group is definitely a possibility. Um, Something to watch out for. <laughs> I don't mind. I, I'm on, I am of the camp that Apple has sort of monopolized their service like i know that gets debated yeah and it's like oh well it's their platform they get to charge whatever they want then don't sell then don't have apple music yeah but the uh the 30 percent whatever you know that's high that's really high yeah it feels like it needs to be a hefty take right it feels like five to ten percent makes more sense 
Yeah. All right. Well, I think that's going to do it. Thank you for listening. Thank you, Alex and Francisco, for coming on. Uh, if we missed anything or you guys want to reach us, it's at Chit Chat Money on Twitter. Uh, but we are not financial advisors. Uh, anything we say or discuss here on Chit Chat Money is not formal advice or recommendation. Brett and I are also general partners at Arch Capital, so uh, clients or ourselves may have positions uh, in the securities discussed on this podcast. Thank you guys for listening. We'll see you next time.